Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, My guest today is Jake Scott. He's a clinical assistant professor of medicine and infectious diseases at Stanford. So we're going to talk about uh, his work there. So, Jake, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. So tell me about your uh, your work in infectious disease, and you know, I'm sure it includes COVID, but uh, tell me about your work up until the beginning, the beginning of this year and then now what's happening. Sure, yeah. So uh, I primarily work as a clinician, uh, as, a, as a doctor seeing patients. Um, most of what I do is um, see patients who are hospitalized with various infectious diseases or, um, you know, or, or complications that could be infectious diseases. Um, I also see um, patients in my office uh, in the outpatient setting with a variety of issues. So in the outpatient setting, um, uh, one of my areas of, of, of focus has been HIV. So I help with uh, the diagnosis and management of uh, patients with HIV. I also do um, HIV prevention, so using uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis. And in the hospital, um, I see just a really wide variety of, of infections. And so when I tell people that I work as an infectious disease doctor, even if I tell you know close friends, I think most people assume that that probably just pertains to sort of exotic contagious diseases like Ebola or um, you know COVID-19. But uh, a lot of what I deal with are very common infections, so um, urinary tract infections, pneumonia, bad cases of appendicitis, um, diabetic foot infections. So I basically help uh, as a I serve as a consultant and help uh, primary doctors in the hospital. So the hospital hospital doctors call themselves hospitalists, uh, or the ICU doctors, or the ER doctors. So they'll call me and uh, ask me to help diagnose the patient and um, get them on the right antibiotics if they, if they weren't antibiotics. Beyond uh, a regular doctor diagnosing someone and, you know, giving them antibiotics, it seems like it's still, for the most part, I guess, is just broad spectrum, you know, nuclear bomb type antibiotics. I mean, are we able to do rapid sequencing and figure out a particular pathogen and then do a targeted antibiotic or, you know, like what's the, the protocols that you're doing lately? Yeah, so it's always going to be uh, a case-by-case basis based on my clinical impression. So it's not always uh, broad-spectrum antibiotics. And uh, oftentimes, a big part of my job is is talking doctors out of using antibiotics. Um, the overuse of antibiotics has been um, leading to a disastrous situation where multidrug-resistant organisms have been steadily on the rise. So a huge part of my job is is what we call antimicrobial stewardship. Um, so, and, and that just refers to protecting the precious antibiotics that we have. Um, 
But again, yeah, it, it's, it totally varies um, depending on the, on the patient. So, you know, sometimes the ER will call me in the middle of the night if I'm on call and say, yeah, I've got a patient who has, um, you know, metastatic cancer um, and they've got this and that and all sorts of, you know, various uh, complicating conditions. Um, they're profoundly neutropenic, so their white blood cell count's really low. Um, and they're going to the ICU in septic shock. Well, in that case, I'm, I'm definitely not going to take any chances, and I'm going to use broad-spectrum antibiotics. Um, but uh, another very important part of my job is tailoring antibiotics as, as quickly as possible. So um, to answer your question about rapid diagnostics, yeah, there's, there's definitely um, been a lot of progress in the last, uh, I'd say, 10 years or so where we're able to uh, more promptly identify the particular pathogen. So for instance, um, the ER, if they see someone who's in septic shock, uh, they always get blood cultures. So then the blood is sent to the lab and um, the tech in the lab will um, put the blood on some um, cultures, uh, which would basically just provide nutrition for any bacteria that are in the blood to help grow um, uh, the bacteria. And once there's growth, then um, we can rapidly identify the particular organism using uh, pretty advanced technology. So we can get uh, an identification of a bacteria, you know, within hours of someone uh, arriving in the emergency department. So if they say, you know, the blood cultures grew E. coli, and I've got someone on medication um, that cover, you know, the whole spectrum of bacteria and maybe fungi as well. Well, then even then I can, even if they're very sick, I know it's E. coli. So I can, um, I can take, you know, two of the antibiotics off and just keep them on one. So um, yeah, but I, I can't emphasize enough how, how important it is for me to, to get patients either off of antibiotics if I don't think they need it, um, and to get them on the right antibiotics as soon as possible. Well, which antibiotics do you have to be more careful prescribing and for what reasons? You know, are certain ones really fast? Do they trigger really fast adaptation to being resistant to them and then to being resistant to other ones? Like, how do you know what to give someone first and not give an answer? Yeah, great question. So it, it all depends on my clinical impression as to where the infection is coming from. So if I'm convinced that it's uh, a skin infection because their leg is red and swollen and there's pus, then I would I would know that the most likely culprit would be a gram-positive bacteria like Staphylococcus aureus or Streptococcus. And I would then know that I probably don't need to cover for E. coli and a number of gram-negative bacteria. So I would use... I would, you know, I would use the narrowest antibiotic I could. Um, there are differences in terms of the, the barriers to resistance among classes of antibiotics, um, and and it there there are ways in which we prioritize antibiotics in terms of um, really trying to avoid uh, resistance to certain classes. So, for instance, there's a class of antibiotics called the carbapenems, and they've been um, well-known uh, for decades now for being the broadest spectrum antibiotic. So they cover um, gram-positive bacteria like staph, 
Um, they cover gram-negative bacteria like E. coli, and they cover anaerobic bacteria like Bacteroides fragilis. But uh, a huge problem in the last uh, 10 years or so has been this worldwide increase in the number of bacteria that are resistant to this class of antibiotics. So the carbapenem-resistant bacteria are extremely um, problematic and, and a huge, huge threat. So for that reason, the carbapenems need to be used very judiciously and should be, I think, in my opinion, restricted to approval by an infectious disease doctor. So when it comes to, you know, I think, I think you touched on a really important sort of misconception about infectious diseases. So, and, and as an example, uh, I distinctly remember when I was uh, an, an internal medicine resident um, in the ICU uh, while rounding, which is where all the you know, doctors in training circle uh, around the attending or the, the teacher, and um, the, the, the attending physician will ask us questions and um, put us on the spot. And I distinctly remember the ICU attending asking uh, all of us what we were going to go into in terms of our subspecialty. And, and I said, infectious diseases. And he said, oh, so you're just going to be okay with uh, recommending antibiotics for the rest of your life. And, and obviously, I, you know, I think he realized he was being overly simplistic, but um, there is this misconception that infectious disease doctors just recommend, you know, the broadest spectrum antibiotic. But, but coming up with, with broad spectrum antibiotics is very easy. Um, any ER doctor, for instance, could, could tell you, um, you know, a combination of antibiotics that would cover uh, most, of, most of our bases. So like vancomycin and zosin is, is a very common cocktail. So you wouldn't need an infectious disease doctor to recommend, you know, the, the, the most, you know, big gun, broad spectrum antibiotics. Um, our job is, I think, um, much more complicated than that. I don't know. Is is phage therapy used or recommended very much? If so, why not? You know what's the uh, I mean, what's you know what's the state of the art here? What's what's next and why? How can we make improvements into current protocols? Good question. You know, as far as uh, phage therapy, I think that there's potential. Um, it certainly hasn't been used clinically yet, and 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 I know that. You've you've interviewed some other folks who who specialize in drug resistance, and I don't want to repeat what they've said, but it is it is worth just sort of reiterating that um, the growing rise of multi drug resistant organisms is is an enormous threat and, and extremely complicated. But um, one of the main reasons why this is uh, an uncontrolled threat is because. Um, our market system for supporting research and development for these these agents is is completely inadequate and has has failed us. So when it comes to developing new antibiotics, um, uh, it's it's been sort of a lost cause, or at least it's been seen by drug companies as a lost cause because these are antibiotics that we want to use as little as possible, right? So to, to tell a drug company um, or, you know, some research organization, hey, help us come up with the newest and greatest um, uh, treatment for these drug-resistant infections. Well, then they'd say, well, okay, so I'm going to invest a billion dollars into R&D for this agent, only to then say, hey, use this as little as possible. Um, oh, there's just, yeah, 
Yeah. So, so, and, and, and I think this is becoming common knowledge increasingly, but, um, so I, I think that it doesn't necessarily have to be as sophisticated as coming up with an entirely new sort of approach to treating infectious disease organisms. I think that we need, we, we need to just even work on simple, simple antimicrobial de- um, development. Um, uh, th- th- there was a, there was an antibiotic developed um, that was FDA approved last year called um, plasomycin. Um, and um, it was a relatively small company, uh, uh, a Kaogen, um, that, um, that developed this. And a lot of us were, 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 were really pleased with, um, with it, it seemed like a very promising drug. But, um, you know, earlier um, this year, or maybe late, maybe late 2019, um, the company went bankrupt um, because, yeah, because, so, you know, here's, here's an innovative antibiotic that could potentially be life-saving, and the company that developed it uh, couldn't, couldn't survive. So, um, yeah, I think, why? Because there just wasn't profit in it, because um, newer antibiotics are even more precious than the ones we're we're losing, we we don't want to lose the the newest and greatest. And I'm not implying that plasmicin was necessarily the newest and greatest, but once we come up with a new antibiotic, um, organisms can quickly develop resistance. Um, so no matter no matter what we come up with uh, at this point, um, there's always the potential for resistance. So we need to use them as sparingly as possible. And is if, anyone- if yeah. Has anyone bothered to look and see why or how? What are the predominant mechanisms by which bacteria become resistant? And are there certain types of molecules that you know they they get resistance to faster than others? And you know, what if you look at the associated virome or phage phageome, I'll call it, with a given bacteria? Maybe there you'd you'd find you know more leverage against it instead of just an antibiotic, maybe you alter its, its I'm, again, I'm going to call it the phageome because multiple phages seem to prey on a given bacteria. Is anyone even looking at that? Yeah, I think that, you know, there, there are hundreds, if not thousands of people researching the mechanisms of antimicrobial resistance. Um, people are dedicating their careers to it. A lot of the funding, unfortunately, is, um, uh, is, is, is insufficient, I'll say, but I, I do think that there are a number of different approaches that um, need to be uh, that we need to invest in, um, whether it's phage therapy or um, CRISPR. Uh, I think that those. I think that alternatives to the penicillin-derived antibiotics. Um, I think alternatives definitely need to be um, looked at, um, and, and and we need to take this extremely seriously. Um, you, you've, you've, you've probably known that um, there's a UK-based uh, study, uh, I believe, last year that um, did some very sort of advanced modeling and predicted to come uh, 2050 that antimicrobial resistance was going to um, be one of the biggest killers in the world and kill more people than cancer. Um, and And so this has been... I mean, COVID-19 is obviously just terrifying and uh, a total nightmare, but it, it, it kind of came out of the blue, even though, you know, a lot of 
specialists who were always saying it's not a matter of um, if, it's a matter of when. But that's something, you know, these sorts of pandemics will hit us periodically. But but antimicrobial resistance has been, um, we've been aware of this ever since penicillin was discovered. You know, Alexander Fleming quickly realized after penicillin was was being used that that uh, antimicrobial resistance and he, superbugs. I mean, they were even using the term superbug back back then. We've been well aware of this problem, and I feel like it's been um, uh, not taken seriously uh, enough, and is going to uh, only only get worse. So yeah, we need to look at every possible approach it, it's 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 definitely going to take an all hands on deck approach and and we've got to get creative and look into um all sorts of you know viral phage therapy solutions um and all that i i don't have any area of expertise in in phage therapy so i can't really speak to that um but i will say uh that until we um have any sort of breakthrough where we're able to use something other than the traditional antibiotics that we've used uh, since the 1940s, that um, the best we can do is um, use the current antibiotics appropriately and really curb their overuse. And, 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 and sometimes, sometimes, you know, we're, sometimes we look for or, or sort of expect these breakthrough solutions, you know, like with COVID-19, I feel like a lot of a lot of us are just, you know, riding this out until there's some vaccine developed at record speed, you know, or some novel therapy or even repurposed therapy that will will save us. But oftentimes it's it's much simpler than that, you know. Like with COVID nineteen, I think the best we can do is just all wear masks. With um with antibiotic resistance, the best we can do is um not overuse the ones we have. Well, in terms of antibiotic resistance, what's an example? How do you use an antibiotic in the right way versus the wrong way? Yeah, so great question. Um, so if I wanted to um, promote resistance, I would use an antibiotic at a low dose for a long period of time. Okay. So um, then, you know, that would just be a total setup for an accelerated sort of natural selection of um, resistance. So the bacteria that, you know, our bodies are full of, of um, uh, billions and trillions of, of, of microscopic organisms. And if those organisms are exposed to uh, antibiotics, then um, while they're replicating, there are going to be mutations that confer resistance. And those genes could then spread to even um, uh, different microorganisms, and um, and resistance can quickly take off. So the um, the the best way to avoid promoting resistance is well, the best way would be to not use antibiotics. Um, but of course, sometimes we have to, and when we do have to use them, um, the the best solution would be to use the most narrow spectrum antibiotic. That's the best antibiotic for that particular infection. And it usually is one. Um, I mean, sometimes we have what we call polymicrobial infections, where it's a a group of of bacteria, for instance. But for the most part, we're dealing with 
with one bad apple, you know? And so we've got to come up with the most targeted antibiotic for that and um, ditch all the others that the patient might be on. And we need to make sure it's the right dose and the right duration. And, and the duration is key. So we are learning more and more these days that shorter is better and that um, we have often been prescribing excessively long courses of antibiotics. What about cocktails of them? Why does it just have to be one? Why can't you use, you know, a third of the dose of three different ones? Why not do that? Well, then you could lead to resistance to all three of those agents. But how do you determine that calculus? How do you know when that would be better? Because it would, you know, there's three different ways that it's kicking the ass of all the microbes there and, you know, and killing them. And so there's less chance to, to become resistant because now there's three different attacks. You know, maybe they'd have to do an efflux pump to fight one. They'd have to change their cell wall to fight another. They'd have to, you know, maybe if you hit them up with no. different mechanisms, then it's more likely. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And sometimes that is, sometimes that, that might uh, work. So, you know, you, you bring up a great question. So uh, something called synergy, you know, or, or combination of antibiotics going to be better uh, to treat certain infections, you know, like pseudomonas. And it's been studied a lot. And um, uh, for the most part, it, it hasn't shown to be better. Um, although I think that in theory, uh, a combination of antibiotics can sometimes um, protect each antibiotic from, um, from, from resistance. So for instance, you know, there's an antibiotic called rifampin. Um, that's one antibiotic where we would almost never use it alone other than in latent tuberculosis. Uh, otherwise, um, uh, resistance develops much more quickly. So we use rifampin in combination with, with other antibiotics. But a lot of what we deal with are um, relatively simple organisms that just require the right antibiotic for the right amount of time. So E. coli, for instance, E. coli makes up about 75% of the bacteria in our colon, and um, it's the most common cause of urinary tract infections. And I see a ton of E. coli urinary tract infections, whether it's simply isolated to the bladder and causing something called cystitis, which is a simple bladder infection, or a kidney infection, something called pyelonephritis, or since the kidney is, is right there at the interface between the blood and, and, and urine. Um, it gets into the blood and causes a bloodstream infection and sometimes septic shock. So, I mean, I, I, I probably see dozens of cases of septic shock a year caused by E. coli. And um, we are able to identify pretty quickly in the lab which antibiotics that E. coli is resistant to and we're able to make sure that they're on the, the best and most narrow spectrum antibiotic and it, and it works. It usually works very quickly, which is one of the things I find so satisfying about infectious disease. I can, I can, you know, cure someone and save their life with, um, with one antibiotic. Okay. So in addition to good stewardship and maybe fast sequencing, so we can see which antibiotic is appropriate, any idea on what some of the other breakthroughs might be and when they, you know, anything that's close or, or we just don't know. Well, in terms of like new new drugs, yeah, I mean, is there even from what I've heard that there's not even um, the incentives are not there, the right incentives are not there to create new 
antibiotics, which is a problem in itself, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a really good point. I, I think that we definitely need to be doing a lot more as a society um, when it comes to promoting awareness around antibi- antimicrobial resistance and the importance of the appropriate use of antibiotics. You know, so we we need to make sure that it's common knowledge amongst everyone that if you have a runny nose and sore throat, antibiotics are not going to help and they're only going to promote resistance among the bacteria that uh, live inside you and aren't causing any problems. Um, So we need to raise more awareness about uh, resistance. We need to um, uh, incentivize uh, companies and um, research institutions to, uh, to focus on this because it's, it's increasingly problematic and increasingly deadly and the current structure is not working. So, you know, there have been a number of, of uh, attempts um, um, to, to help incentivize um, companies with, with various bills, et cetera. Um, I don't know all the intricacies of, 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 of that, but um, I, I think that, you know, there's a lot more work that needs to be done um, in terms of, of um, you know, making sure that, you know, the antibiotic pipeline is keeping up with, with the, the organisms. And, you know, the, these organisms, they've, they've been ready to be resistant to anything that we throw at them for thousands or millions of years, you know, and that's the thing. They, they've got the home court advantage and they outnumber us, you know, a, a billion fold or more. So, um, so this is a, a lopsided battle and we need to do more and not less. And uh, have you heard of the, um, that study of the Amazonian tribe? I might not pronounce it right, but the uh, Yamomani. Yeah. Have, you, have you heard of that? Uh, that the study of the, their, uh, their um, microbiome was uh, deep sequenced. Did you, you heard about that? I've heard that they've been studied, but I don't know what the implications were. Everyone yeah. said that. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I think it's really interesting. So there is a there is a, a tribe in the Amazon, I believe it's called the Yanomani or something along those lines, and they had been completely removed from um, any contact. They'd been completely isolated, and they had not been in contact with um, the rest of the world, and they had never been given an antibiotic. And so um, someone had, um, or a team of researchers, were able to get fecal samples and do genetic studies looking at um, their, their microbiome. And um, there, were, there were two things that were interesting. One, um, their microbiome was the most diverse. And that wasn't you know, that surprising um, since they hadn't been exposed to antibiotics. They had the, the most diverse microbiome. But the other thing that I think was much more interesting was that they actually found a number of genes in their in the bacteria that were in their stool that had um, potential um, to encode resistance to a number of antibiotics, including some of our latest and greatest and synthetic antibiotics. So, so the the, the potential um, to to lead to resistance, it's 
it's there and it's built into these organisms. And when we throw antibiotics at these bacteria that are in our guts or on our skin uh, or anywhere else, then um, that is just adding fuel to the fire. And um, so, uh, yeah, I just can't emphasize enough that they've got a major advantage of, over us and um, we need to be doing more. Well, very good. Jake, what's the best way for people to get in contact and ask you questions and learn more? If people have questions about um, antibiotic resistance, um, if they want to read maybe papers that you've put out, if you have, you know, if they want to find out more in general about the subject or about your particular work, where could they go? What, what, should they Google you, a Google Scholar, or what's what's a recommendation? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I don't want to, uh, you know, provide my direct contact information. I've I've, I've been quite busy, especially with uh, COVID nineteen um, sure. and and uh, patient patient care. But there are a number of of great resources. So the uh, CDC uh, is is a great resource um, for antibiotic resistance, um, as is the World Health Organization. They both have uh, a lot of information uh, online. Um, and I think that there's more and more great reporting out there about um, this issue. Um, there are a number of other um, institutional resources. Um, the, um, the University of, of Minnesota has a, a great resource um, online. It's uh, called CIDRAP the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. Um, the Infectious Disease Society of America, IDSA, uh, is also a great resource. So there are a number of great resources out there about antibiotic resistance, and it is something that uh, I'm, I'm obviously passionate about and, and love to talk about. So I'm happy to talk more about it um, anytime. So, okay. Well, very good. Well, Jake, thanks for coming on the call. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, it was my pleasure. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.